0: at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu
1: and there are a lot of people
0: who are deeply
1: frustrated with this war every rich person in russia with one or two exceptions are frustrated with this war i think many of the so-called liberal technocratic elites in the government they're frustrated with this war lots of regional leaders are frustrated with this war it's not just the vocal opposition I think there's a quiet minority, and maybe even majority, that is exhausted with what Putin has done.
2: Welcome to the Democracy Paradox podcast. This is my daddy.
0: My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the Democracy Paradox. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has lasted almost five months at this point. Over that time, the war has already gone through a few different phases. The war began as a blitzkrieg that touched every part of Ukraine. Lately, Russia has focused on a slow and more methodical conquest of the Donbass. Meanwhile, new weapons offer hope to turn the momentum of the war yet again. Today's conversation revisits the war in Ukraine. We reflect on what we have learned over the past five months and how that changes our opinions about the war. And there is no one I'd like to re examine thoughts on Russia and Ukraine with more than Michael McFall and Robert Person. Michael is the former U.S. Ambassador to Russia, a professor of political science at Stanford University, and director of the Freeman Spogley Institute for International Studies. Rob is an associate professor of international relations at the US Military Academy. Our conversation touches on some big-picture ideas about Russia, Ukraine, and the war. Of course, anybody who follows Michael McFaul already knows he has an extensive media presence. So I wanted to ask some of those difficult questions that traditional media outlets just don't have the time to tackle. Hopefully you enjoy our expansive conversation that touches on ideas about democracy, history, and even a few counterfactuals. If you want to hear more, check out the bonus content available at Patreon. Rob and I extend our conversation after Michael had to go. You can find a link in the show notes or just look up Democracy Paradox at patreon.com. Like always, you can find a full transcript of the podcast at democracyparadox.com. But before we get started, both Michael and and Rob have positions that are either funded or have direct connections with the US government in some way. So let me just be clear that the views expressed in this interview are our own and do not reflect the official position of the US Army, Department of Defense, or US government. So with that said, here is my conversation with Robert Person and Michael McFall. Robert Person and Michael McFall welcome to the Democracy Paradox.
1: Thanks for having us. Or thanks for having me. I'll let Rob speak for himself. Yeah, it's 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 great to be here with both of you.
0: Well, I want to start with Michael for just a moment here. Having read From Cold War to Hot Peace, it's such a fascinating book because it's both a personal memoir and almost like a history of America's relations with Russia during a very pivotal time. And You document just a very important moment for you personally and a turning point for Russo American foreign relations. You actually write in Prague, I had been the author of The Reset, the driver of closer relations with Russia. In Moscow, I was a revolutionary, a usurper, and Vladimir Putin's personal foe. It's such a striking line, and it's hard to explain it without really giving an example of some of the experiences that you had. So why don't we start there with just a personal experience. Michael, can you kind of just tell us a story that helps explain Putin's animosity towards the United States and to you yourself personally in your role as ambassador when you were in Russia?
1: Well, sure. Thanks for having me and thanks for reading the book. I'm glad you referenced that it, it is the arc of the relationship over 30 years, the coda, the ending. The tragic ending is about the most difficult time in U.S.-Russian relations since deep into the Cold War, and it only got worse since I finished writing that book, obviously. I go through the periods where there was more cooperation, obviously, in the Gorbachev years, the Yeltsin years, and even the Medvedev years, as you're talking about. You know, I was in Prague when we signed the New START Treaty. That was a peak moment in many ways in terms of cooperation. By the way, our societies also agreed with that back then. 60% of Russians thought we had a good relationship and a, a pretty similar number of Americans thought of that. And it deteriorated rapidly over the last, you know, the two years when I arrived in Moscow. And I want to get to your question in a minute, the specifics, but the why it did, I think is important because it's related. Two things happened. One, Putin came back. And two, in December 2011, there was a falsified election, a uh, kind of normal, falsified Russian level of falsification. Only this time, there were smartphones and the social media and the middle class in big cities, and they protested it. And so you had hundreds of thousands of people on the streets of Moscow. And some of those people, Justin, are people I've known well. Some of them I've had known for decades. And so when I arrived in Moscow, Putin blamed us for those protests, right? He blamed the United States. He blamed Obama. He blamed Secretary Clinton and he blamed me. And even before I arrived, my first day of work, I remember it was a long weekend because it was Martin Luther King weekend. So we had the Monday off. We arrived with my family. We're really excited to be there, by the way. This is going to be a great new chapter in all of our lives, my wife and two sons. And we're kind of touring Spasa House, our new home, which is this incredible place with all kinds of history in it. There's photos of Kissinger and Reagan and Brezhnev. I mean, it's in and of itself. It's a museum of U.S.-Soviet relations and U.S.-Russian relations. And that night, Sunday night, I turned on the TV just to kind of get my Russian back up to speed. I hadn't taken Russian formally since I was an undergraduate at Stanford, so it'd been a long time. And that was when I knew things were going to be different because there was a hit piece by a guy named Michel leontiev somebody, again, I've known forever. This was not my first rodeo as ambassador in Russia or the Soviet Union. I have some deep history with a lot of people, including those that later went on to work for Putin. And he was one of them. He's a, at the time worked for the Channel One in Russia. And it was basically explaining to the millions of Russians about my arrival that I was there to foment revolution uh, and to coordinate uh, revolution inside Russia. Two decades ago, I had written a, a book, a very academic book called Russia's Unfinished Revolution. And Leontief said, Well, now he's come back to finish the revolution. And that was when I knew that life was going to be difficult as the new US ambassador in Russia.
0: So, Rob, I want to kind of turn to you. The paper that you and Michael wrote is called What Putin Fears. But I think. One of the purposes to writing about what Putin fears was why Putin chose to go to war. It's been a few months since you wrote that paper, and maybe there's some second-guessing or some revision that maybe you have in terms of why Putin really chose to go to war, but I'd like to know from you, like, why is it that you feel that Putin decided to actually invade Ukraine, and whether or not Russia's objectives in this war have really changed?
2: Yeah, that's an excellent set of questions and, you know, I think in general as as academics, policymakers, you know, we always have to, you know, revisit our own conclusions, our own assumptions and be willing to revise them when we find evidence to the contrary. But with that said, I still believe that at its core Russia's motivations and objectives in this conflict are unchanged. For many, many years, going back at least to the colored revolutions, the Orange Revolution of 2004 and 2005, it has been clear to me that Russia, and particularly Vladimir Putin, have essentially sought to control Ukrainian politics, to include Ukraine in a privileged and exclusive sphere of influence, to grant Russia essentially a veto at the foreign and domestic policy making table in Kyiv. And over those years, they've tried a variety of tactics and methods to sort of bring that about to essentially, you know, achieve in Ukraine, a puppet government that is compliant and willing to do whatever command is issued in the Kremlin. And so You know, you have heavy Russian involvement and manipulation of the Ukrainian electoral process that ultimately leads to the Orange Revolution. And ultimately, that's unsuccessful. You've got several years of rocky relations. You have again in 2013 and 2014, this critical moment when the Ukrainian people, you know, make clear that they want their destiny to face westward. They want their future to be a European one, and that's fundamentally unacceptable to Putin. And, uh, you know, the pressure that he places on Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych ultimately leads to the Maidan revolution and this extraordinary military intervention, uh, the seizure of Crimea and the instigation of a thinly veiled sort of covert intervention in the Donbas. And, you know, from then on, Through the combination of the conflict itself in the Donbass, you know, an ongoing sort of series of destabilizing measures, I think Putin's objective throughout all of that was to hopefully generate enough domestic instability in Ukraine such that the democratically elected government in Kiev would somehow sort of topple on its own. For whatever reason or reasons... Come late 2021, it appears that Putin sort of had grown impatient with that approach and was ready to take matters into his own hands and provoke this unjustified and open outright military intervention and invasion. And, you know, as uh, Mike and I argue in the article, you know, even back then in January and February, as we were working on it. It was clear that his objectives were to go in very quickly, strike hard, drive to Kyiv, and ultimately overthrow the Zelensky government, the democratically elected government of Ukraine and install some pro-Russian regime. That part obviously failed spectacularly. And so now I think we're in a phase of the conflict where they've sort of stepped back tactically, They've sort of reoriented their objectives, looking for first territorial consolidation in the east and the south of Ukraine. But I don't believe for a minute that Putin has backed off of that ultimate objective of overthrowing Ukraine's government and wrenching the country back into his orbit. And if anything, I think it's gotten a little bit scarier and more dangerous that perhaps he's shifted from a strategy of regime change To one of essentially trying to provoke the collapse of the Ukrainian state and some of the measures that he's taken to essentially choke the Ukrainian economy, blockade the ports are, I think, indicative of a situation where he's still attempting to just blow up the whole project.
0: So, Mike, in Rob's answer, he focuses a lot on Putin and Putin's beliefs and Putin's attitudes. And it's something that a lot of us do, that we refer to Putin rather than to Russia. And as I went through a lot of your work, like a lot of your past articles, I even went back and read Power and Purpose, one of your other books that you've written. And individuals seem to have an incredible influence in the arc of history for you. I mean, it comes up again and again in your work. And you wrote in a recent article in the Journal of Democracy individuals and choices matter, even if they sometimes generate unintended consequences. So, is this war, is this direction that Russia is going in terms of this invasion? Is this just Vladimir Putin's vision, Vladimir Putin's idea? Or if he's taken out of the picture, is this something that the Russian people or the Russian elites still would want to do?
1: Well, that's a big, hard question. Let me try to unpack it a little bit and build a little bit on Rob's answer about what's changed since we wrote our article. That's a great question. The first thing I would say is, individuals don't only matter. You know, there's such a dichotomy in this debate about this invasion and, you know, realists versus liberals. And it gets quasi-religious sometimes in the way that people, you know, support one camp or the other. It doesn't feel so scientific to me always. It feels very ideological. People are committed to an argument and I'm going to keep with it for 30 years, you know, no matter what. My plea is that could we please get beyond that? And so as part of my plea, I would say, of course, everything begins with power. Power matters too. So as a first basis of analysis, irrespective of who the individuals are in Russia, and I would say this about other great powers too, without the power to do certain things, it doesn't matter who the leader is, right? But to say that power is the only thing that matters, that to me just seems naive and the counterfactuals just add up so quickly that that just seems a very simplistic arguments that needs refinement, that needs amendment and monocausal arguments. If you think about any other thing we study scientifically to say that one thing causes everything in the world, you know, most theories have moved beyond that. And I would like us to try to do that in studying the international system as well. Now to your question, run the counterfactual. If somebody else, and let's, let's make it very explicit, right? The best counterfactuals are those when you just have to change something a little bit, And it's plausible that it could be changed. And in the Russia case, imagine that instead of choosing Vladimir Putin, Boris Yeltsin chose Boris Nemtsov. And that's not a wild counterfactual because that, in fact, was his plan. We know this from historical archives now. It was clear as day that that's what he wanted to do. And then we call them exogenous shocks, right? Then, uh, you know, something out of the blue happened. It was the August 1998 financial crash. So government that was in place had to resign. They then put in a place of communists for a while, and then they ended up with Vladimir Putin as the prime minister. And I just want to remind your listeners, when he was appointed prime minister and then acting president, hardly anybody knew anything about him. So the idea that Putin wants you to believe is that there was this massive demand for Putin and his worldview. Nothing could be farther from the truth. The oligarchs, the horrible oligarchs that Putin now hates, are the ones that actually helped to choose him to make him president. I raise that counterfactual because Boris Nemtsov is not just some abstract figure. He was a popular figure. I think he could have won that election. And he also was my friend. I knew him well until he was assassinated in 2015. And there's no doubt in my mind that if Boris Nemtsov was president in 2014 or 2022, that Russia would not have invaded Ukraine.
0: So... Rob I've heard Mike make this argument before that if Boris Nemtsov was the president of Russia that Russia would much more likely have remained a democracy or at least been a democracy much longer and this kind of gets back to the heart of your article that is the idea that if Russia was democratic that they would behave differently in international relations that the thing that Putin fears most is a democratic Ukraine If Russia was a democracy, do you feel that Russia would behave differently in terms of international relations? Do you feel that Russia would be a different type of hegemonic power within Eurasia? Yeah, absolutely.
2: With, without a doubt. In the social sciences, we rarely, if ever, speak of laws. You know, We don't have the luxury of the law of gravity and some of the other laws of physics. But one of the things that comes closest to a law-like status in international relations is this idea, this empirical fact that democracies don't fight wars with other democracies. And there's a robust statistical relationship borne out by all sorts of deep case studies. And the logic is something along the following, you know, in democracies, we have very powerful norms and institutions and frankly, a culture of how we settle problems or how we should settle problems, you know, which is nonviolently you know, we don't resort to violence to settle our political disputes. You know, we're certainly not supposed to, you know, storm the seat of government and exercise violence against democratically elected officials. No, we compromise, we negotiate, uh, we find common ground, and so on and so forth. And, you know, because those are the very powerful norms that govern how we settle things within democracies, we tend to extend that same courtesy, if you will, To other democracies because they're like us. You know, you can see this extraordinary period of peace in Western Europe that for centuries was, you know, a hotbed of great power war. But since, you know, the post World War II period, thanks to the proliferation of democracies and international institutions, it's been, you know, the most extraordinary period of peace and prosperity. And so I have no doubt that if Russia were a consolidated, Stable democracy that it would approach the world very different and it would understand sort of its relationship with the world in a much different and more peaceful way. And I think this sort of ties back to a really important point that Mike just made, which is to say that, you know, yes, there are all sorts of international stimuli that countries sort of have to deal with, you know, power, security, living in a rough neighborhood. All of these things do matter but how those stimuli get processed and acted upon often is the product of domestic level considerations you know perhaps it's political regime perhaps it's individual leaders but i have to imagine that a large sort of continental country like russia you know live in the same neighborhood same geography same sort of objective external conditions but it would process those stimuli very differently if it were a democracy. So in that counterfactual world, yes, I think we'd be in a very different position. Now it's a completely separate and deep old debate that I know Mike has long been involved in of okay, so, you know, why didn't democracy succeed in Russia, but clearly it matters when it comes to their foreign policy and behavior.
0: Let me ask a follow-up where we look at the other side of the coin instead of just russia we look at ukraine because this war has been described as a conflict between autocracy and democracy and russia represents autocracy ukraine represents the battle for democracy ukraine's obviously going to face a lot of challenges in its democracy not just now but also whenever a peace is established what are the prospects for ukraine to remain committed to democracy? After this conflict is over, what challenges is it going to face and what does it need to do to preserve its democracy?
1: So, lots to tackle there. By the way, I wrote my first book about Ukraine in 2006, just so you know. So, I've been looking at Ukraine for a long time in this comparative way. And I interact with the government pretty much on a daily basis these days. And I would say a couple of things. As the war rages on in the barbaric way that it is, Ukrainians are still struggling with their democracy today. And they're still arguing about it. And there's been some recent news about an appointment of a prosecutor for corruption that Zelensky hasn't done, that he's been criticized by, what's to happen with the oligarchs after the war, and what's to happen with their media. So democracy in Ukraine has been interrupted in some ways. All the television stations now all share one channel I appear on there fairly frequently. But it's still going on. I think that's important for people to understand. It's not like they declared that they're going to have emergency rule forever, there's still parliamentary politics and there's still independent media in Ukraine today. But I would say the, the challenge will be great because Reconstruction in a post-war Ukraine is going to be a tremendously giant operation. There was just a conference in July 4th and 5th in Lugano looking at the reconstruction efforts. I'm an external advisor for the Ukrainian government's plan, and they're measuring it in 700 $800, 900000000000 billion is what they think they'll need for reconstruction. And at a time when the West is exhausted with providing Ukraine with resources and that fight over resources and reconstruction is going to be challenging for Ukrainian democracy. There's no doubt in my mind about that. Having said all that, I do think if you look at opinion polls and you follow kind of domestic politics inside Ukraine today, there is unity forged because of this outside invader. That's a good thing in terms of the identity, the Ukrainian identity, the Ukrainian nation. And that will help, I think, consolidate democracy. Number two, Zelensky has emerged, I think, as an extraordinary leader. Those are good things in terms of democratic consolidation. And on the opposite ledger, just to echo something Rob said, I don't know when this war will end. I don't know where it'll end. I don't know where the borders will be. I did want to add a little bit out of sequence here. I think one of the things that's changed watching Putin and the things he's talking about is he almost doesn't talk about NATO expansion anymore at all. Instead, he's really shifted to this more imperial language about uniting former Russian territories that used to be part of them. That's something that we touched on in our article. Uh, but it has grown over time because of the failures that he had in achieving those bigger objectives of uniting all Ukrainians because they're just Russians with accents. Well, he failed at that. He failed at overthrowing the Zelensky government. So now he's more focused on this imperial argument, I would say, about taking Donbass. But even if, let's say, the war ends in a stalemate and maybe even not a solution, but you know, some kind of Korean outcome, I, I don't want to predict what it might be there's no doubt in my mind that Putin will continue using whatever means he has to continue to undermine Ukrainian democratic institutions. And so they will have to face
0: that while they're trying to rebuild their country and consolidate their democracy. Are the sanctions working? Are they doing what we were hoping that they would accomplish? One of the challenges when it comes to
2: sanctions, at least conceptually, Is again, you have to think in terms of counterfactuals and you have to think in terms of the objective. So there are many that very early on in the war said, well, you know, sanctions or the threat of sanctions failed to deter Russia from invading. Therefore, sanctions writ large are a failure. You know, we couldn't credibly promise sufficient economic pain in order to get him to change his calculus. Therefore, it's a failure a little bit deeper into the war, you know, you say, okay, the point of sanctions is no longer deterrence. You know, he pulled the trigger, he crossed the frontier. And it might be tempting to say that, okay, now the point of sanctions is essentially compellence. You know, we want to coerce and compel Russia to leave Ukraine. And so we're going to bring this economic pressure a variety of different tools, many of which are pretty extraordinary and that they've never been used against an economy as large and interconnected in the global economy as Russia's. And it's tempting now, especially, you know, as the conflict drags on, as we're facing our own economic headwinds globally, it's tempting to say, well, you know, sanctions have failed because they didn't compel Putin to reverse course or to alter his objectives. The counterfactual of course is, you know, what would Russia have achieved? What would they do in the absence of sanctions? And I have no doubt that, you know, Russia certainly would have felt much more emboldened to take even more drastic measures uh, had they essentially been met with little to no western response. And so, you know, that certainly matters. But it also then, I think, points to really sort of the third objective, and frankly, the long-term objective with sanctions, is that now it's essentially about degrading Russia's ability to continue fighting this war and to afford it. And so that's partly through export restrictions. Denying them the technologies that they need for their military to continue producing weapons and the like. But it's also slowly over time eroding their economic performance and capacity. And this is a long term game. And that's sort of a message that I think is a critical one. It's a tough one to sell to Western publics right now. Again, as we're starting to sort of feel some economic challenges for a variety of reasons. But, you know, this is a long strategy over time to sort of slowly degrade Russia's ability to fight this war and hopefully through that way undermine, if not the regime's willingness to fight this war, then to undermine the Russian population's willingness to continue supporting or being complicit with that regime and its war.
0: Mike, you mentioned that as ambassador to Russia, when you first got to Russia, that they brought up a book that you wrote about the unfinished revolution and they said that you were there to finish the revolution. There's an interesting line in your book, Power and Purpose, that you wrote with James Goldgeier. Near the end, you write, The Russian Revolution remains unfinished, and we should be humble in our assessments of where it is going. It's a fascinating line, especially in light of what they said about you, because the recent revolution that toppled the USSR I mean, that's recent history compared to something like the Russian Revolution, the idea of that even being unfinished. And with this new chapter of Vladimir Putin just becoming even more autocratic within Russia, invading Ukraine, where is the Russian Revolution itself going today? Again, great question, Justin. We should do this for hours, but let's do it again sometime. A couple of
1: things I'd say. So that book was published, if I remember, 2002, 2003, almost 20 years ago. And I think your sense, trying to give our listeners here today, a sense of time being long is important when talking about revolutions. When I talk about the Soviet Revolution, by the way, it was a triple transformation, right? It was from empire to nation states, from command economy to capitalism, and from autocracy, dictatorship to democracy, all done at the same time. We should have expected, as I've written for decades, that it was going to be messy and take a long time. Number two, the first piece I ever wrote, if I'm not mistaken, where I used the word revolution to describe what was going on in the Soviet Union was in August 1990, so a year before the Soviet Union collapsed. And what I did, because you just did it, so I want to do it, I compared what was happening in the Soviet Union at the time. I was living there back and forth with what happened in the Russian Revolution and the French Revolution. That was the three comparisons. And there was this book I was reading at the time, I think it's on my shelf right now, by Crane Britton. It's called Anatomy of Revolution, and he talks about the various periods of revolution. So first there's the state breakdown, splits among the elites, then the moderates take over, then the extremists take over, the real revolutionaries, the Jacobins, and then there's a backlash. Thermidor was the phrase that he used, a word from the French Revolution. And as I was living and toggling back and forth between Palo Alto and Moscow, then I spent the academic year, 1990, 91 in Moscow at Moscow State University. But I wrote this piece right before I went. And I said, this is a revolution. This is not just a reform. At the time, everybody was focused on Gorbachev. And I was like, Gorbachev has no future. This is going to break down. There's going to be the disintegration of the Soviet empire. That that is inevitable. That's going to happen. The moderates are going to take over. And then there will be, after the radicals try to break everything up right away with shock therapy. I didn't know these words at the time, but to try to go too fast, too far, there will be a thermidor. And I said, there will be a strongman that will come in that mess, just like there was with Napoleon and Stalin in those other revolutions. Uh, I didn't know his name was Putin. This is, you know, a decade before anybody had ever heard of him. But there is those tendencies. That's why I think your point about we don't know how it ends is still true. By the way, tragically, that piece was published in the San Jose Mercury News. So not many people have read it, but I will send it to you all so you don't think I'm just making all this up. But I do think it is true. This is the Thermidor. This is the last hurrah. And by the way, Thermidor was a blending of the old and the new. It wasn't counter-revolution, right? It was Stalin blended things from the past with the revolution. Same with Napoleon. And I see Putin as the backlash to the revolution, promising stability in a different way and fusing things from the past with things in the future. And he's done that, I think, in a rather creative way, by the way invoking some symbols from the Soviet Union with some new things about a new kind of imperial russia what i don't know with certainty is what comes after putin and the thermidor but i do know that it's not inevitable that putinism as a system of government will be in power for decades in fact if i was pressed i would say that's much more unlikely than something else and you know you think about the death of stalin 53 You think about the death of Brezhnev, the last two leaders that had a long stay ruling that country. In both cases, it took a while, by the way, it didn't happen right away in either case, but eventually you had a reaction against Stalinism and against Brezhnevism. And I think that is much more likely than a continuation of Putinism. I think Putinism has exhausted itself. It's exhausted itself domestically. Uh, When you have to arrest everybody, I currently have four personal friends of mine arrested by Vladimir Putin today. Five, if you count an American friend of mine, Mark Fogel. When you have to go after everybody, that means you're very insecure about your system. If guys like Navalny are threatening you, that means you're worried about your regime. A confident leader wouldn't worry about guys like Navalny. Putin's worried. And then second, remember, he's been around for 22 years. He hasn't built a political party. There's no obvious successor. And there are a lot of people who are deeply frustrated with this war. Every rich person in Russia, with one or two exceptions, are frustrated with this war. I think many of the so-called liberal technocratic elites in the government, they're frustrated with this war. Lots of regional leaders are frustrated with this war. It's not just the vocal opposition. I think there's a quiet minority and maybe even majority that is exhausted with what Putin has done. And so in the era that begins after he's the leader, I think will be one, tumultuous, and two,
0: perhaps more Western-oriented and more democratically oriented. Thanks so much for being here, guys. Thank you so much, Mike and Rob. Thanks for having us. Thank you. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.